Is your fixed income truly fixed income? Does it provide diversification, income, and risk management for your clients? At MFS, we help advisors deliver these essentials. We call it Essential Fixed Income. Find out more at mfs.com slash fixed income. Blog Talk Radio. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Syracuse Sports Make Me Drink here on the Train News and Ask the Magician Podcast Network. I'm your host, as always, John Casillo, and with me today is Matt McCluskey. Hello. What's going on? Not much, John. Just uh, preparing for what should be a good battle tomorrow with Syracuse and Pittsburgh, and uh, looking forward to chatting away with you here for another uh, hopefully good edition here. Yeah, uh, it's actually just us today. Dan is unfortunately under the weather. Ah, I guess we're on top of the weather. <laughs> Whatever. It's pretty easy to be on top of the weather when it's always 65 to 70 degrees. Shut up. Shut up. It's <laughs> minus 12 currently. Minus 12, and <laughs> we have had feet of snow, an ice storm, multiple blizzards. This is literally, this has been one of the worst winters I could think of uh, in my few decades of conscionable living. I just, I cannot believe the winter we've had. So enjoy your sunshine because we don't get it. Yeah, I've heard I've heard quite a bit about the polar vortex, and I, I I I truly do feel bad because there really is no matter how many years you've gone through it, there is there is no there is no saving grace from you know just like bitterly cold like disastrous temperatures for everyone. Yeah. It's just everyone around here is, is constantly saying, oh, well, it's an old-fashioned win- winter because we've had pretty moderate winters over the last two or three years. But in all reality, it's not old-fashioned. It's just bad, and it's rough, and it's cold. And when it's not cold, we're getting snow. We're not getting snow. It's ice. So it's just – it really, it's, it's relentless. And there's another storm on its way, evidently, for Thursday night, Friday morning. So – Although it's February, it's not lighting up at all on this side of the, the world. Well, hopefully Syracuse basketball can uh, kind of change everybody's tune. I know things aren't overwhelmingly positive, but good basketball can change things here and there. <laughs> yeah, it's been good so far. Even when it's ugly, it's been good. Certainly a lot of storylines and a lot of fun for us writing on Sean's site, so can't complain with that by any stretch. I mean, not just like a gut check. Like, what did you feel at the end of the Clemson game? I know it was – I know it was one of those games where kind of – you never felt Syracuse was going to lose, but until about four minutes left, you you were never consumed with an overwhelming feeling that, that SU was going to win either. And I know that we're kind of used to that this season, but still the need is never – I'm never thrilled about that. It's par for the course, like you said. It's just it, – it's uh, if you could complain, it's it's funny because if a DePaul fan could hear this conversation or, you know, certainly any of the lower-tier ACC fan bases could hear this conversation, you're thinking, well, how can you complain? How can you nitpick when a team is 23-0 and 10-0 and and now? in conference play, but that's, I think that is the biggest complaint amongst the, uh, among fans of the orange is the fact that this team for as good as, as it is, as, as it's been 
as it probably will be, it does not put teams away. Just final dagger in the coffin or whatever the expression you want to use. And that it's a little unsettling. It really is. It's nice to see a team always find a way, and it's nice to see a team not panic and also being undefeated, having to come back so many times in conference play and non-conference play, for that matter, to be able to find wins. This team knows how to get it done when it matters. So that's the that's the big point for me with, with Syracuse basketball for this season is that it finds ways to get it done when absolutely necessary. But I agree with a lot of the other people that have been talking to me and you know tweeting and, and posting and everything else about how this team just does not blow out teams. It does not put the hammer down. And that is frustrating, and there's a lot of reason, reasons why it doesn't happen, but there's no question. It, it's certainly frustrating, and like you said, I didn't think the Clemson game, at, at, at zero point, that I think Syracuse was going to lose that game, but it was, you know, my phone blew up with texts, why can't this team just put put it all together? And I don't think it will. I think the answer is, it just simply won't, but ultimately, a win is a win is a win, and 23 in a row. And it's unfortunate because I do feel like, you know, you definitely have the the hyper-realists on the site, and then you have, you know, the, the folks like me who might – I mean, and to me, like right now, hyper-realism is kind of exactly what you said, a win's a win. And no matter how you slice it, the team's won every game it's played this year. So, no, we, we won't always be happy about how it's done. We won't always be happy about um, – you know, like the final margin and, and who scores how many points and all that. But, I mean, at the end of the day, you, you win the games. And, and that's really, I mean, the, the biggest deal to me. Um, I guess what I want to see, though, is is I, I almost want to see some more games like like the, the first pit game, like the Duke game. And that is putting this, Putting the team in position against quality competition to really, you know, score points when it counts because you know th- that's what's going to get you. That's going to get you far in the tournament. It's not. It doesn't matter if you beat a team like Clemson or Wake Forest by 20 or five. At, you know, at the end of the day, that win was supposed to happen. But you know, winning those winning those close matchups, and obviously, yeah, you'd love to blow out great teams too, but. I don't always feel like you learn a ton from that. Sometimes it's just one matchup that shifts it one way or the other. I feel like you learn a lot about your team, and if you're a player, you learn a lot about you know how you're going to respond in those situations. Um, you know, gun to your head at the end. Yeah, it's a fantastic point because Syracuse at this area of the season knows that I think for the most part CJ Fair is going to be the guy at points. And if it's not C.J. Fair, it's going to be Tyler Ennis. And we learned that a long time ago because of all these close games that Syracuse has had and really a lot of good competition between the Maui Invitational and some of the ACC teams. It's really – and Villanova, obviously, for that matter, being down 18 nothing and coming back. A lot of this is going to go through the guys that we know, and it's it's just – that's it. It's sold, it's printed, and on on its way to the public when – the going gets tough, C.J. Fair will probably have first crack, and if worst-case scenario comes to worst-case scenario, Tyler Ennis will take over and do what he has to do. And because of all these close games, against some good competition and against some bad, Syracuse knows what it is. 
it's a defensive team. It's a team that can do what it, you know, it, it can play up the level of competition. It can play down to the level of competition. But when it gets down to it, there's a, a functionality in place that a lot of teams just simply don't have right now, either because they're so young or they're untested. And Syracuse, although being somewhat young, obviously, is very tested and has that, you know, built-in mechanism to say, this is what we're going to do. We've been here. We've done that. And that's a huge thing. The, the record's gaudy, and I think people nitpick the record because it is so gaudy, because it's 23-0 and rather than 19-2 and or 20-3 and or whatever you want to, you know, break all the records down to. If, if Syracuse's record was similar to a Michigan State or whatever, it wouldn't be as under the radar, or under the spotlight, rather. But because it's 23-0, everybody has a chance to say, well, Syracuse is not going to go undefeated because of this, or look at the issues it's having here. And ultimately, what really matters is it finds a way to win, and in all circumstances under the sun, it's done it. It's been there, and it's done that. And, and you know, John, I agree. I, I, just, I think that is hugely important at this point in the season. 23-0 is nice, but ultimately finding ways to win and being in those situations and having experience to draw on is a bigger deal. Uh, I completely agree. And then I guess my next question, and this is something that hasn't been brought up because we've won every game so far, and I know that I'm going to get lambasted for this, but how do you feel about the fact that Syracuse really hasn't played much on the road? It's it, well, it's it's a real thing. Well, it, it's It's a real thing. <laughs> I'm going to, like, back talk myself out of that. It's a real thing, but it's something that doesn't necessarily matter come tournament time. Everyone always harps on the road records, and obviously being in, in Syracuse, we all know how SU has never had a home game in the last four decades. And that is real. Syracuse is going to lose games. I don't – personally, myself, I could care less about being undefeated. I don't think that matters at all. I, I'd never start a basketball season thinking, boy, I hope Syracuse goes undefeated or – boy, I hope the Knicks go undefeated or whatever. It just doesn't happen in basketball. So that to me is kind of not a, that's a non-issue. But while I think Syracuse has absolutely been tested to a point where a lot of other teams have not been tested, the simple truth is playing at Virginia, and that's a team that's on fire right now, may not be that good, but it's definitely on fire, and playing at Duke, which could be a loss, and tomorrow night with or tonight, whenever this airs, because of Pittsburgh, uh, that having it back-ended this way, the schedule, that's that's a real thing. Syracuse has not had the same challenges as some of the other schools out there. And there's just no real way to get around that, in my opinion. So I, I do think, yeah, it's, Syracuse is going to be tested over the next four weeks in ways that have not been to this point. Ultimately, it doesn't necessarily matter because you do not play tournament games on the road. You play them on neutral courts. If you're good enough, you play close enough to home. And Syracuse is good enough to play in Buffalo, and then probably in New York City and Manhattan at MSG. And those games won't be road games for all intent and purposes. Those will be home games. So I think we know enough about Syracuse to think that, yep, it's it's the best team in the country right now, and it's certainly in the top three or four teams that can win it all. I don't think there's any questions. But if people want to nitpick and say that it really hasn't played true, really, really difficult road games, it, well, I think the evidence does bear that out. I think that's probably a good point. Yeah, I mean, you know what? Like, I I agree with you. I've never I've never bought into the narrative that road games equal, um, you know, tournament tested. I 
and, and in the end, you know, they don't matter. You're playing at neutral sites for the most part in the NCAA tournament, and I actually think neutral site record would probably be a better indicator of how well you're going to play come yeah, the postseason. Okay. There's also the factor that, you know, Syracuse is probably playing four straight home games in the first round of the tournament, in the first four rounds of the tournament, um, you know, based on where the East bracket takes place in Buffalo and MSG. Um, but I do think road games matter just in terms of in terms of tests, and it goes right back to what I was saying before. It's those close games in hostile atmospheres where, you know, against a quality opponent, you can pull out a win. I don't care. If we had 25 road wins against, you know, Maryland, Wake, and Florida State, I wouldn't care. But if but I, I but if we had three road wins against UVA, Pitt, Duke, to me that's what matters, and and that's I guess what people are kind of looking at or would be looking at if we weren't undefeated as like the only maybe hole in the resume right now. I I agree. I think that uh, like you you just said, Syracuse had already won at Duke rather than at home and had one at Virginia, then there's, there would be nothing to nitpick. There just simply wouldn't be. Syracuse would be far and away the best team. I think it is, but there are arguments to be had or at least debates to be explored. Um, and that's just the way it felt. Obviously, Syracuse didn't make this schedule. It's playing the one it has. And there there are some benefits to it. You know, just I think... Opening up with BC and Virginia Tech and Wake on the road. Although Wake may end up sneaking into the tournament. I don't know if that's going to happen. and It probably won't at this point. But that's not going to be, I don't know. That was an okay win for me on the road. But I, I do agree. Overall, it's been easier on the road for Syracuse in ACC play than it could have been. Yeah, I think Wake presents an interesting point. Because I know I was reading like Bubble Watch. from like ESPN's Bubble Watch just came, like started its first edition this week, and I think, you know, they bring up some good points Which, by the way, not, not to interrupt, but completely eliminated the AAC, <laughs> the American Athletic <laughs> Conference. Totally didn't, it didn't even, the first edition did not even include that conference for locks or bubbles. It just doesn't even exist, which I thought was fantastic. When did you read it? Because when I read it, it was there. Oh, uh, let's see, probably noon Eastern time, probably somewhere in there. And it was actually uh, our good friends um, at the UConn blog, No Escalators, on Twitter. Is it No Escalators? Am I saying that right? I feel like it's. I feel like there's more to that name. Anyway, yeah, he... Uh, Andrew, yeah, Andrew used to be the editor over there. Yeah, and he's just... He's a he's a must-follow on, on Twitter, and he's, I guess, a pseudo-friend of mine on Twitter. And so he's the one that actually tweeted, hey, there's something missing here. I clicked the link, and I looked through it, and I was like, what's missing? And then all of a sudden it clicked. Oh, it started with the ACC, went to the Big East, completely ignored the AAC. So I thought, oh, there's something kind of funny about that. And they did add him back at, later on, because I didn't get to read it um, probably until, like, 5 Eastern. Okay. Yeah, it must have been later, because... It was definitely during the workday, and I caught it. I probably right around lunchtime is when I did check it out and noticed that he completely omitted an entire conference. And for the chip that's on Connecticut's shoulder to not only be caught in the lowly AAC, then on top of that, not even see the conference's name show up 
in terms of who's qualifying for the tournament. In, Connecticut fans had a field day with that. Well, I just find it interesting. Like I was saying earlier, just like Wake's not the only team, too. There's, there's a whole lot of uh, major conference teams right now that are just kind of hanging around this, like, no man's land that in many years, like, either, like, probably would have been eliminated already. But because of, I mean, we've talked about it on the podcast, there's, you know, there's 16 teams who could be playing for a national championship right now. There's, and then after those 16, there's, like, a huge drop-off. And then there's probably about 40 to 50 teams who could potentially, like, be playing into the second weekend. And I guess to me, like, you know, it it speaks to, I guess, like how much actual parity is, is in college basketball when, you know, teams like LSU and Tennessee that just have, like, these not great resumes and, like, Wake and Clemson, which are, like, mostly based on, like, one win. team like Xavier is on the bubble. I mean, you have teams like, you know, uh, Wisconsin Green Bay that could, that could play itself in as an at-large just because, like, there really aren't a ton. I mean, a traditional, like, you know, top seven or eight conference at, like, the Mountain West, only really two teams even in line for a bid, and only one of them to lock is San Diego State. So there's just, I mean, the, the field's wide open, and we could see teams like North Carolina that most years would be a 12 at, at most, hanging around an 8-9 seed, which could also be dangerous for a one seed like Syracuse. I have so many thoughts on this. I've, I can't, I've constantly, <laughs> bracketology has always been such an, a fascinating thing to me uh, from the early days of Lenardi and, and everyone else kind of hopping on that. I, a couple points on this. One, I agree there's parity, but I think there's a limit to that parity. I think I don't think there's 16 teams that can win the championship. I think we're looking at probably five, six, seven teams that can win it, that literally just you know has the quality – to win it. I think those teams are limited. I think that there are a lot of teams that could get in, and I agree that but when you look at the big picture, there's parity because of a Tennessee or uh, even a, a St. John's who any other year would be left for dead, is on fire a little bit in the Big East, and is probably on the fringe, if not in right now, to the tournament. And that was a team that was 0 for, I think, 6 or 0 for 5 to start the Big East, which is not a good conference this season. And St. John's does not even have that many great quality wins, but it's on fire right now, and I think, you know, could get in. Or Wake Forest, which has no real great quality win, could get in. I agree there that the bubble aspect is way wider than ever before. But I, I don't necessarily agree that 16 teams could win this. I personally... I'm looking at a few teams that have that quality, have that it factor, that have all the quantifiables that you need to have to, to get it done. I, I don't think it's nearly that big. But furthermore, I agree with you on the sense that you're going to see this year an 8-seed, 9-seed, 10-seed, and, and further back, some of these teams are going to be really, really good. Oklahoma State got crushed again tonight, did not have Marcus Smith, or Marcus Smart, I mean, and eventually we'll get Smart back, and eventually, I think, we'll play decent enough basketball to qualify in one way or another for the NCAA tournament. And that could be, with Travis Ford, who I think is an underrated coach, I think he's getting crushed right now for a lot of, that team has just had the karma gods of basketball crushing it this year. I think he's a good coach. 
I know they've had injuries and defections, but I think Marcus Smart's a great guard. And Oklahoma State kind of being like an 11 seed, which is ridiculous to think about. So I think once we get into the second day of the tournament this year, or whatever it is, the third day of the tournament, I think you can see some monumental upsets. And that's huge for Syracuse. And I put it on Twitter today. SU is probably going to end up losing two, three times before March and before the NCAA tournament. I think at least worst-case scenario, because of the games at Virginia, at Florida State, at Duke, at Pitt, at Maryland, it's going to get a little rough before it gets better for SU. I think the Orange are locked into a one seed, and I think the Orange are locked into Buffalo as the pod system. But I don't know if SU's locked into the East yet. And it's, I think, of utmost concern and utmost importance to make sure that Syracuse gets that one seed because, as you said earlier, and as you know, we've talked about for a long time, it's got to go from Buffalo to Man- Manhattan and Madison Square Garden to Texas. I think that's the route Syracuse needs to have. And if you stay on the one line but you go out west if you're Syracuse, you're, that second weekend you're going to be playing really, really good teams in the Sweet 16, maybe better than ever in the Sweet 16. And I think you just certainly want to have that New York, New York City, Manhattan, MSC feel to it. You want that backing rather than being out west or being down south or wherever. You want to be in in New York. So it's really it's, it's an interesting time for SU because to say that it's locked into MSG, I don't I don't think that's the case. A one seed more than likely, but MSG there's work to be done, and because it's such a deep field, not full of great contenders necessarily, but of certainly of of good teams, quality teams, you're probably going to see some upsets in that Sweet 16 that maybe you don't see in years past. So I guess if if you think that we're not a lock for MSG, I guess what what needs to happen in order to get that done? I I, I threw it out on Twitter, and a lot of people tweeted me and kept saying things like, well, look at everyone else. Everyone else has so many losses. And if you break it down by geography, Syracuse is the best team in the East, quote-unquote, and it's far up on everyone else that could really qualify for one seed out East or in the East. And, that you know, and I guess that's true, but there's a month left, and that's a lot of basketball. So it's all perception. Perception is always reality. So while everyone understands that SU is loaded and really legit this season, a loss tomorrow night to Pittsburgh or tonight to Pittsburgh will be – everyone will talk about how it's an upset and how SU lost. Syracuse will likely rebound against NC State and then probably go to number two, maybe number three in the country. But then, obviously, at Duke, which I think we all believe could be a loss, so SU loses and falls to, let's say, four or five. Later on, at Virginia, at the least, which could be a loss. So SU is going to, you know, it's going to be hovering around maybe. And, again, this is worst-case scenario, and I don't necessarily think it's going to happen. I'm just throwing out potential roadmaps here for SU. If SU does lose, let's say, three of the games on the road, very understandable. It does not mean it's a bad team. It's, conference road losses are acceptable. And Jared, I think, had a great piece uh, today on the site about how difficult it is to win on the road in conference. So with perception being reality, the committee may get together during the ACC tournament and you know, Syracuse, let's say, gets to the semifinals at the least. And everyone says, all right, well, good. It's, it's good enough for a one seed. But it's lost three games here in the last month, maybe two in the last six or eight or whatever. I, 
you know, I don't know who would jump Syracuse in the East, and I think that's a legit argument to say, well, there's no one else that could do that, so SU's locked into the East. But just with perception being reality, people might say, late losses in the season, schedule got tough, and SU kind of faltered a little bit. He does not have Coleman. We don't know what Keita. Let's put them at the one. Let's just put them somewhere else. You know, I can't necessarily answer who would take Syracuse's place, but I can, I can, in my head anyway, rationale why SU would fall, stay on that line, but just fall a little bit. Just a little bit. Right? Maybe even a Villanova or someone else could, could, you know, eventually do enough to earn a one. But there's so much basketball left to be played that I, you can't say that MSG is a, a certain lock for the Orange. I mean, I, I think that makes a lot of fair points. Um, I, I would actually say that, that our biggest risk was losing a one. Um, but, like, I, I don't think Syracuse will be sent anywhere based on geography. Um, I, I just don't think they'll be sent anywhere but MSG if they're a one. Um, I, I just think that, you know, right now the pool is kind of limited as far as potential one seed. Um I agree. And, and I, I do think, well, I think one, one team that's kind of hanging around in the background that could absolutely steal the East from us, not Villanova, because I think um, most people would give us that in a head-to-head. Um, the team that, I, that I'm worried about hanging around is Duke. Um, yeah. If Duke, beats, if Duke beats us, if Duke runs through the rest of the uh, ACC schedule and wins the ACC tournament, um I mean, that, that's a team that could take the Easter Mustang. You know, if UVA wins out and wins the ACC tournament, they'll be a 17-1 ACC team um, with, with a tournament title on top of it and, you know, a relative to the East Coast location. Um, I mean, Louisville's not dead yet. Um, so, yeah, to be honest, I, 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 don't, I think if, we, if we're a one, we're, in, we're at MSG, but... I think it's. I think there's there's some very real threats to Syracuse getting knocked off that line completely, especially within the conference. I I agree. I think there's and and when I say this, I do think SU is probably going to be that one. And I you know Syracuse I don't see losing a home game. And I think probably wins at Maryland at Florida State and gets to at least the semis in the ACC, if not winning at all. But uh, in terms of the tournament in Greensboro, but I just there's so much left to be played. And I just think that that perception of late season and how you're playing is real, and it could could play somewhat a role here. I don't know if there's a team out there that could necessarily leapfrog SU in the East. There's just there's there's so much left to play that you can't really say, oh well, it's a lock, put SU there, because I think it'd be kind of foolish to think that SU is not going to lose some of these games. Agreed, and we've talked about it on the blog. It's it's losing the right games, like. We can lose to Pitt and Duke, and as long as we beat UVA, we we pretty much have the ACC locked up as long as we just get the rest of our business done. Mm-hmm. Um, just, be, just just by pure tiebreakers and numbers, that's, you know, that's a certainty. So, I mean, I, I, I buy into SU as a number one. I buy into us going through MSG, but... You know, that, that, that's not to, to gloss over, you know, the business we have to tend to. Everybody else does, too. Duke wins out and wins the ACC. Chances are that's two wins over Syracuse. So, I mean, if people are going to put us head-to-head, and let's say Syracuse has three losses versus Duke's five, but Duke's one, you know, but Duke hasn't lost in two months. 
then yeah, you know what, maybe that's a team that jumps us. Again, it's I, I think that there's a lot of flaws at the top. I think people are going to punch holes in San Diego State and Wichita State resumes. But um, to me, I mean, we, we have some real competition um, on the one line. I think in order, Arizona, Florida, Duke, and if Michigan State ever gets healthy and Villanova are all oh right my there. God. And so dangerous. So and, and you know what? Like I, I want, I want them to keep winning, just because I don't want them slotted on a two, on a two or a three line, because they keep getting upset. They're just, they're so good, and like you said, if, if healthy, holy lord, that is a good team. But I, it's interesting because I remember in two thousand three when Syracuse obviously won it all, but when Syracuse went to East Lansing and beat Michigan State. And that, I think, was in mid to late February. It was a really kind of random non-conference game. Bayham doesn't usually do that. SU won on CBS National Game. It was a big, big deal. And I remember leaving that game, not that I was there, but just, like, I guess turning off the game and thinking, boy, I, I don't know if there's a team out there. And Michigan State was actually not that great at the time. But I just remember thinking, I don't know if there's a team out there that Syracuse can't beat. And I rarely think that. I, probably in 2010, I thought that before, obviously, Anawako's injury. Maybe in 2012, although I wasn't completely sold on that team, but certainly being a one seed and a, and a great year for SU, I thought, boy, that's good. I'm in that line this year. Keita's injury has me thinking a little differently, and Coleman obviously being out is just a body absent and five fouls absent. But there's not another team out there, even with Duke, with the way it's playing, and if State gets healthy, and Wichita State may run the table. I, Syracuse, I think, could, there's not a team out there that really makes me think, boy, SU can't beat that team. And while we, a lot of fans may think, well, duh, Syracuse is 23-0 and and put their head in the sand, that's not, that's rare. I mean, that's really rare, not just being an SU fan, follower, faithful. Being a fan of any team to have that confidence to say, yeah, Syracuse may not win it all, and that's without question, SU may not win it all. But I don't think there's a team out there that is overly aggressive enough to beat the zone or just straight up better than Syracuse. And that is, it's it's strange, kind of. It's not just SU 23-0 and and rattling off wins. It's beating top-quality competition. And it's doing this. And I don't know if there's, SU may lose this season. It probably will lose multiple times this season. But when push comes to shove, I don't think there's a team out there that Syracuse can't beat, and that's very different. It's just different to think that SU is not only the number one team of the country, but really one of the two, three, four, five best teams that probably have the best chance to win it all. Yeah, I mean, weirdly, we've been here before. I mean, I think 2010 and 2012 in particular, we were here before. Um, but at the you same get that time, I really think... In 2010, I mean, I know, we, I know we talked about it last week. I'm still sold that the 2010 team, and again, some some senior year bias definitely applies here. But being around that team, you know, every every night at the dome was electric. Um, it was that was a team that that you know knew how to put knew how to put opponents away and put them away very very early. And, and to me, that was just such an asset to that squad. The pro- and, like, 
you know, in the long run, I thought it was going to really help us out because we had reserves playing extended minutes. Um, that, unfortunately, wasn't really the case because we didn't have the right reserves playing, you know, more minutes, nor did we really have the type of big man depth that we needed to, to sustain the loss of Orenze and Oaku. Um, I think the 2010 team, though, had enough dynamic scores, enough of an inside presence with everyone healthy that, that that was at least a Final Four team. And the same thing with 2012, it's bad not um, been suspended. I mean, we didn't really, we weren't really that far from getting to the Final Four without that. So, you know, it's going to be both of those teams um, were definitely there. I, I think, though, that both of those teams had had some glaring weaknesses that were that were regularly pointed out and were pointed out in losses. I think it's tough right now to compare this team to those teams because this team hasn't lost, so we don't necessarily understand the consequences of its weaknesses just yet. Not to say this team has to lose, but to say, because obviously if they win every game, then there are no consequences of their weaknesses. They were better than everybody. But if this team, you know, if once this team loses a game, and it, as you said, not it will happen, um, I think we'll be much more able to assess how these weaknesses are going to affect this team, you know, over the long haul. And and I agree with you, though. There's there's no one that, that really scares me. I mean, Duke was one of the scariest teams for us going into the season, and we already beat them, um, regardless of what happens at Cameron in a week or so. Um, I, I You know, I, we obviously, we've identified, you know, some of the scary teams like Creighton, um, so we can shoot the lights out on us from three. We identify teams like UBA. We seem built to we seem built to kind of, you know, play a different style and really force us into like out of our own comfort zone. But you know what, you're right. Like this is this is a team that you know, right now until we lose, there's no one that stands out to me as as like the 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 orange killer, the team that, that that's gonna figure out the zone and and, and knock us down a peg. I think outside of some of the crazy teams, possible matchups, you mentioned Creighton, and we all saw what it did against Villanova last month, which makes it scary. But even that, across the board, there are teams that can definitely shoot the ball, and Duke is always one of those teams. But it it just seems like everybody has the same style of basketball, and that's, for the most part, play tough defense, get the rebounds, get some steals, win sloppy, win ugly, and get out of there. I think that's kind of, maybe that's too broad of a narrative, but it seems like that's what college basketball has become. And because of that, Syracuse, with its zone defense, I hate to label it. I've said this forever. We can label it whatever you want, and everyone always seems to think that 2-3 makes it a gimmick. But the truth is, Syracuse just plays lights-out defense. Whatever you want to call it, it's, it's just aggressive and good defense. And it brings usually the better shooting teams down a peg. And looking across the board, yeah, a team might get hot and hit 15 three-pointers against Syracuse. And if that happens, Syracuse or any opponent would lose. But for the most part, on average, I don't think there's a team out there that's built to do that against Syracuse's defense. Now, there's the variable of Keita, and there are other things out there. But just face value straight up, to me, Syracuse is easily in the discussion. I know you agree, John. You basically just said it. But I, Syracuse is in the top. If you're going to really narrow the field down, and I don't think there are 16 teams, as I said, or 20 teams that can win this. I know Bayheim thinks that, but 
I think there probably are really about five teams, maybe six, that can win the championship. And Syracuse is in that top tier of those six. And it's just... When, in 2010, I really... I thought Poliaski's really good. And then Anawaku got hurt, and I thought, oh, well, okay, maybe it's not that good. But I never thought SU was the best. And now, with this, I, I, I honestly feel like Kita's situation does make it a variable, just change things a little bit. But I think Syracuse is probably the best, like legitimately, not just record, not just ranking, but just the best between coaching and players and defense and, you know, those intangibles that you need to win. I think Syracuse is the best, like legitimately the best. And that's a little weird to me. I don't know why. Maybe it's just the pessimist that I am, but it does feel kind of strange at this point in the season to be pretty comfortable knowing that Syracuse is in that very limited group that not only could, but probably should win the title. I'd buy that. And on that note, why don't we uh, why don't we jump into a little uh, beer chat, and then we can kind of uh, jump back over. Matt, what have you been drinking over the last week or so in the freezing bitter cold? Oh, just ungodly cold. Uh, a lot of dogfish head. <clears throat> a lot of dogfish head. 60... 90 and a little 120 was uh, were my vices of the week or so between the two. I just I've always been a dogfish head guy or dogfish head head, and um, so that's been where I've at. I haven't had a chance to get out too much. Was at a brewery that has uh, I can't even remember the numbers now, but it's like 30 craft on tap and like 60 or 70 in house and. While it has a great selection, the other night I just found myself going more and more of the dogs I should. So that's where I was this week. Nice. Never complain about dogs I should. Um, we get it pretty regularly out here, pretty much everywhere in the country. I've, I've never, I've never had much of an issue with it. I definitely would drink <laughs> sixty or ninety minutes. I'm just handed it. Without fail. Um, over here, I was uh, I went down to uh, Orange County last weekend uh, and uh, stopped over at the brewery. For those who are familiar, over in uh, Placentia, uh, just uh, east of uh, Fullerton, uh, down there, and grabbed myself some of their uh, very excellent, mostly Belgian style. Years. I know I grabbed, um, surprisingly, well, not surprising to most people um, who listen to this podcast, uh, Humulus Lager, their uh, pale lager, uh, was absolutely excellent. I really wish it was uh, bottled, but unfortunately it's not. Um, that's a bummer for everyone back east, because let me tell you, you're missing out on something, um, not having that available. Um, and then Cacao Nut, which uh, has had some controversy. I know it, it was a Reserve Society uh, label uh, when it was bottled, and unfortunately was uh, mailed to a lot of folks infected. So it seems that whatever that issue, the issue was there, um, they've kind of solved that on uh, draft, at least. And, it, and this was absolutely fantastic. Anyone who's in the California area, um, definitely definitely find yourself at the brewery and uh, – and order at least a glass of that. But be warned, it is 15.6% alcohol. Oof. 
But you can't even taste it. You honestly taste like you're drinking bourbon and Kahlua as a beer. Is, uh, and then what else did I have in that week? Oh, and then 2020 IPA. Um, actually, a great beer from uh, Golden Road Brewing. And what they do, uh, well, with that beer at least, is uh, a lot of the proceeds are going towards uh, restoring part of the L.A. River, which is, you know, a cool cause and definitely uh, something worth uh, supporting for people in the L.A. area just so, you know, we have, like, we have a river. Nobody uses it. There's no really, like, riverfront, like, things to do. Um, so this is kind of going toward uh, refurbishing that. Um, and I drank a bunch of other stuff, but we don't really have to go into that. So, yeah, sorry for, once again, giving a mostly Southern California-centric <laughs> selection of beers that can't be acquired anywhere outside of state. Pissing people off in the Northeast even further. <laughs> kind of my job. <laughs> you do good at it. You really do. Yeah. All right. So uh, we've spent the last uh, 15 to 18 minutes um, chatting in particular about Pittsburgh. Um, last we saw Pitt, they uh, they were locked in a uh, pretty tight battle with us, but since then they've uh, it's kind of looked like shit. <laughs> no, no, really, no other way to put it. They, they really look like shit. more so than normal, at least offensively. <laughs> and Patterson's injury, Lamar Patterson, who is the guy that everyone talks to, keys on, and certainly the man for Pittsburgh has a thumb injury. And according to Jamie Dixon, it's not that severe. He thought it'd be more so. It's not, but good lord. Patterson has not looked the same basically since he was in the dome. The first half against SU didn't do much, hit the three threes right in a row late against the Orange. And that, I thought, you know, I was sitting in the dome that day and I thought, boy, Patterson just won the game for Pitt. And luckily, Ennis and company, basically Tyler Ennis, just said, no, not today. But since that point, Pitt struggled offensively for the most part. And that's, I think, in large part due to Patterson's thumb injury. And if it's still bothering him tomorrow night, which it seems like it will be, I'll say this. I thought for sure a week ago and probably a month ago and further back, I thought, boy, he's probably not going to win that game at the peak because Pittsburgh had only lost 23 times total in that arena coming into this season and because Syracuse had only won one time in that arena in 2004. So I thought, all things considered, no dice. This won't happen. But now with Patterson's injury uh, and the injuries that Pitt's dealing with in general, and the fact that Pitt just lost to Virginia at home, Duke at home, and as you mentioned, almost to Virginia Tech at home. I, you know what's weird? I actually think Syracuse is going to win tomorrow now because rock fights we've seen are kind of Syracuse's specialty. I don't know if anyone wants to admit that because of the old run and fun gun and, you know, get points days of Jim Bayheim teams, but those are long gone. The teams that Bayheim has had, for whatever other reason, in very successful teams over the last five years, have been mostly, we're going to just slow you down, punch you in the face, you'll punch us, and we'll go back and forth a little bit, and we'll win in the 50s. And I think tomorrow night, or tonight, uh, Syracuse can win at the peak in the 50s, against a team in Pittsburgh that just has lost a lot of its momentum and has severe injuries crippling 
its ability to get the ball in the bucket. And if you can't shoot against Syracuse, you're in an awful lot of trouble. If you can't shoot in general, that's a dumb statement. You can't make baskets, you can't score, you can't win. But if you really can't shoot, if you can't extend the zone, then it's going to be a long night. And what I'm thinking right now about this game is the injury factor for Pitt is going to play a major role and obviously a big key advantage for Syracuse. And you, you brought up Patterson. It's interesting. Um, I wasn't following exactly when the thumb became an issue, but you can kind of see um, you know, a little bit of a pattern um, for him and kind of his effectiveness over the last five games or so. I mean, again, they have looked mostly awful uh, for the past five games, but um, against Maryland, 14 shots, hit eight, 28 points. Against Duke, 14 shots, hit four, 14 points, lost. Against Virginia, 14 shots, hit three, 10 points, lost. Six for 14 against Miami, 25 points. They won that game in overtime. Then was held scoreless in regulation against Virginia Tech and managed to hit one of nine. Um, I think at this point, Patterson is being dependent on far too much for points. He's being dependent on far too much. You can see his rebounding effectiveness has gone way, way down. Um, He's gotten foul trouble. Uh, a few of the last five games. He's suddenly prone to turnovers. He's hitting free throws, which is which is a positive, but beyond that, um, he's just, you know, he's not he's not hitting that same three point uh, stroke. I mean he's still hitting at a forty percent clip. Let's not let's not over exaggerate. He's still shooting better than most this season. But over the last five games, I mean he's shooting sixteen for like 25, no, not even, like 6 for 25 or something like that from 3, which is, you know, not all that great, including 0 for 6 against Virginia Tech. Plus, like, the minutes he's been playing has just gone up and up um, over time. Like I said, I think he's being taxed a bit too much um, on, I think, both ends, and and it's starting to, especially with the thumb injury, it's really starting to to wear him down. It's starting to wear down the effectiveness of his pit team. Um, I, I think... I think with the thumb, I think he becomes much less of a factor for us in terms of guarding the perimeter. And you know what? Like, if it wasn't for his that string that he went on, you know, in the game up at the dome a couple weeks ago, I mean, that game that game was dead in the water with 15 minutes to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he hit those three threes, and they were so. And it's just odd. It, it was even. It was not like the superstar just saying, "All right, give him the ball. I'm gonna take over." He hit the first one, and then it was a little later with the second one. It was just they didn't go in rhythm the way that normal superstars will do, especially at the Dome. But he did hit him, and he definitely – Pittsburgh and, and Dixon, and, you know, as a coach, has a, a penchant for just staying close with Syracuse and beating Syracuse. So that is certainly the underlying scariest theme, I would think, for SU fans is how – many times over the years that Pitt has beaten Syracuse. The X factor, and it's not, this isn't rocket science. You know, Lamar Patterson has an injury, as we said. That's big. If Kiva doesn't play, that's probably bigger, just in the sense of how ugly this game could be, how many fouls it could, you know, have, and how lack, the flow of a normal basketball game seems to dissipate when these two teams go at it. There's just not a normal flow ever. 
and if Syracuse doesn't have the added ability of bringing in Kia for a spark plug and for five extra fouls, that may swing the pendulum a little bit toward Pittsburgh. I still feel pretty confident that Syracuse can win based on the way Pitt's played lately and the way that Syracuse has played all season. But I do think Kita's injury is a really, really big deal. Personally, and again, this is a Tuesday we're recording. I don't think Kita's going to play in this game. I do think he comes back this season. But we heard a lot of the same rhetoric with Daywan Coleman. You remember when his injury happened and everyone said, well, it's a bruise, he'll be fine. He played against Virginia Tech, and then it was shut down, done, over with. I don't think that's the case here. And we'll never know, really, with Syracuse because they're so cryptic with everything when it comes to injuries. But it's funny to me that we keep hearing, he'll be back, he'll be back. And that was kind of the same all when it came to Coleman. So that's something to keep an eye on because personally, and it's just a total guess, I have no inside information. But I don't think he is going to play against Pitt. Well, I did see, um, I forgot who it was that tweeted it out, um, that Kata is traveling with the team to Pittsburgh. Is traveling, did not practice again, and I think Pete Moore, who I've been hounding lately for some info, I think he said more or less, Kita is day-to-day, there's nothing, there's no, no new evaluation, no new diagnosis with him. He's day-to-day, did not practice, but is traveling, which to me doesn't mean much. Right. Because I mean, it's granted, so he's like, done it in the past. I mean, SU Athletics is incredibly cryptic, and I don't necessarily buy in, you know, to to anything more than, like, a- anything more than just, okay, like, let's see what happens. But, um, I mean, I do think it's a little bit of a positive to see that he is traveling with the team. I know Coleman did the same. Um, yeah. And a lot of players would, especially before they're officially ruled out for the year. And again, I don't think that's going to be the case. I don't think he has done for the year, but what's happening so far is no different than any other injury Syracuse players have had that weren't instantly diagnosable. Like at Devendorf when he tore his ACL, watching the game, everyone knew that's really, really bad. But if it's kind of up in the air for debate, Syracuse will play it as close to the vest as possible. Fair, fair. Um, I guess overall, what do we think about the Cicada injury? I mean, I teased out this, and everyone will see this on Thursday, this question in the uh, in the roundtable for everyone. But, I mean, this injury kind of, like, whether Cicada's back at full strength or not, I really think that makes Rocky and Christmas our, our most important player. I know that um, a rotating cast of Enos or Fair is our best player, but, but do we think that this really puts a hell of a lot of weight on Rakim and and really kind of, you know, put, puts the spotlight on him like it's never been before. And now, now we really get to see, you know, how he can respond. I agree. I do think, though, that Christmas after the Coleman injury and after, you know, he was officially gone, I thought Christmas got more run than normal anyway, uh, just because of attrition and because of Behan knowing what to do. Christmas has played routinely with two or three fouls in, in games past, he would be out well before getting to that point. But Beheim, I don't know if it's just trust trust in Christmas or just the way it's going, um, you know, just from lack of bodies. But I think Beheim is allowing Christmas to play more, allowing him to get into a groove, into a rhythm more. But I do agree, 
there's no doubt about it. Because of the lack of bodies inside, Christmas is more important than ever before. And I've said this all season. I tweeted it all season. We've talked about it in the roundtable also on the site. I think he is, Christmas has improved exponentially this season. And you really, not just from year to year, not just from last year to this season, but game to game, not necessarily defensively, because I do think significant on defense, but offensively, the ability of him getting to the rim, getting open, getting position in the paint, being a factor on offense, maybe more so than we've seen in a long time from a real, true, you know, center or power forward position player. It's just, it's fun to watch. It's impressive. I think a lot of it has to do with Tyler Ennis because Ennis is that you-first mentality point guard, the guy that will find the open player and does play in, in rhythm, and he does allow the offense to kind of come to the team a little bit. Whatever it is, Christmas has changed years this season. I mean, even before the injury to Coleman and now before the injury to Keita, Christmas has been a huge, real important player offensively for the Orange. And a big reason why Syracuse is 23-0. and He's the unheralded guy because he's not fair and he's not Tyler Ennis and he's not Cooney hitting, you know, for 23-pointers in the game. But he's doing just enough offensively, allowing Syracuse points at key moments in games and I've been thoroughly, thoroughly impressed with Christmas's development this season. It's on par with me. It's not quite the same as, uh, you know, going way, way back. It's not quite the same as Ronnie Cycli, but it's pretty close in terms of just being a non-factor, starting to develop, showing some flashes. At this point right now, I'm going to call my shot a little bit. I think Christmas is going to be a superstar next year. I don't know if he'll be a first-round top-10 draft pick superstar, the way Cycli evolved into, but I do think that Christmas is going to be a major factor offensively next season, and I think he's going to get some real love from the NFL, or from the NFL, from the NBA scouts next year because of this progression. Big men take a long time to develop, and he's showing this season, game by game, that things are starting to click. You just kind of see it flash a little bit each game. I think some of that credit is to Ennis, but I do think some of it is to just Christmas's development, and like you said, I mean, there's no way to say it other than, yeah, because of the other injuries and issues, no doubt about it, Christmas is more important than ever before. But I do think he's ready to take it more and take it to the next step more so than ever before. I mean, I, I honestly, I buy his improvement a lot, and I think it's funny, we've always kind of looked at the big man jump as this, you know, ridiculous astronomical rise, and I think that's that's what's led to so much you know, Christmas derision, but in reality, Christmas has has really progressed, and I mean, no, it it hasn't been the, like, quick leap that, you know, the Mellows and Rick Jacksons and Arenzes have made before him, but, I mean, this isn't outlandish for an undersized five at all to me, and I think he's really improved, and I think a lot of it is because of Enos, and I think at the same time, like, you know what, he is a physical presence, and him and Grant together, um, I think the both of them actually really enhance each other's games, too. I don't think it's overly crowded. I think Christmas can play a traditional five when, when called upon. No, it's not as, you know, as physically imposing as we've seen in the past, and we've had some really big guys in the middle of that uh, zone, but I don't necessarily think that 
you know, that he's a lesser player for it in any way, shape, or form. And I think, you know, obviously all bets are off if, if the season ends the way we all want it to, and we could see a, a, a you know, massive departure of players. But if him and Tyler are both there next year, we could really be seeing something special. Yeah, totally agree. I guess we will uh guess we'll end it there before uh kind of sending British women starts counting me out. I know I'm the only one that hears that, but it does get a little distracting when you suddenly feel like you're running out of some sort of some sort of cave with some sort of jewels. <laughs> there she is. <laughs> ah. Uh, Matt, thanks again for joining, as always. Thank you, John, for having me. Anyone local, by the way, uh, my radio show is back on the air if you're living in upstate New York, so check out Fox Sports Radio 1410 Friday morning, 7 to 9. We'll talk a lot at SU this Friday and every Friday. Actually, this Friday, Ben Pollockwood, old friend of mine, joins me uh, on the show Friday from 7 to 9, Fox Sports Radio 1410. Good stuff. Uh, I would listen if I was up that early, Matt, but like I said, if for some reason you ever need a guest in a tight spot, feel free to hit me up. I can make myself available. Oh, well, that's coming, and you should be listening, you son of a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. All right, everyone, uh, for Syracuse Sports Make Me Drink here on the Trinion's Absolute Magician Podcast Network, I'm John. That's Matt. Go Orange. Yes, sir. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a -a once-a-year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted.